This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for iPhone, iPad, and iPod, Android, Kindle, Windows Phone, plus Mac or PC. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Plus, if you'd like to support our programming personally, visit trek.fm slash donate to get our alien badges and art prints, featuring original illustration by Tobu Ushi. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. How we doing, Trip? Ready when you are. Prepare for warp. Course laid in, sir. Request permission to get underway. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Enterprise show. I'm Christopher Jones, and joining me again this week from that land down under, apparently a very, very hot land down under, it's Kate Walsh. Kate, I heard it's 43 degrees Celsius down there today, but uh, you're not actually on fire yet. No, I'm not on fire, but the Adelaide Hills are on fire. There's been very severe warnings today, and it's going to be this hot for the rest of the week. So I do like the hot weather, though. Um, I like it at around 43 degrees. But uh, right where I'm recording right now has no air conditioning whatsoever, so it's definitely going to be a steamy podcast. Yikes. So you like 43 degrees. I do. I grew up um, in northern South Australia, and it was like this regularly, so... I grew up where the temperatures were like that in the summer as well. Uh, For for those listening who are accustomed to Fahrenheit, that's, you know, well over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. And I hate it now because I grew up with it and I don't want to be anywhere near it. Mm. I know what you mean about the fires, though. We lived in northern Nevada, northern California, and that's a big problem there in the summer, too, because it's so, so dry and the temperatures rise and uh, we have the, the fire threat all the time as well. Yeah. Well, Kate, speaking of Australia, I, I hope that the Vulcans have evacuated their consulate in Canberra or else things could get a little dicey mm. in your part of the world during yeah. today's show. I was thinking that too. Um, with any luck, they've uh, jetted off to the uh, German embassy instead, at least for the time being, for, you know, to uh, well to escape the weather, but also, to, yeah, those those imminent fires. Exactly. Although they are used you to know. the heat on Vulcan. But that's true. Yeah, they wouldn't mind. But, but you know, you don't want to be anywhere near there with Paxton threatening to blow the place up. Oh, absolutely not. So today we're going to actually talk about Paxton a bit, and we're going to run all the way to the end of the series, which is also a pivotal moment in Star Trek history because it's the point at which the the coalition that will ultimately become the Federation is really starting to come together and Enterprise started out with this great hope of mankind's expansion into the galaxy. We've got the first Warp 5 ship. We can really go out there now and explore. Of course, the theme song is telling you exactly that as well. But then the series ended with that future in question in Mm. a way because the, the xenophobia really set in and we got to see the challenges of 
what it would be like to try to develop a coalition like that. And um, at least if you consider Demons and Terra Prime to be the final episodes, which is something else that we'll talk about as we go along. Mm. Well, I am am a big fan of the 24th century stuff and the particularly um, the kind of idealistic vision of humanity's future. And um, although, you know, Enterprise is is a little um, more edgy in its approach uh, because of the time period, after watching Demons and Terror Prime again this week, I found myself reflecting on um, this aspect of enterprise. And this is one of the the big occasions where we see them say, you know, we're not perfect yet. You know, we're we're, um, humanity is almost there. You know, we've almost got it all together um, since that Third World War. Um, But we see uh, in these two episodes those flaws of humanity and, and the last steps that they need to take in order to really become what we see later on in Kirk and Picard's time. So um, it, it's interesting for me because, as I said, I am a fan of the the more uh, utopian stuff, but I am a major fan of these episodes. I think that they are really quite important in in the overall Trek franchise because, it, it, you know, we, we have to think, well, how did we get to that utopian 24th century? Right. You know, we didn't just come out of the war and the Vulcans showed up and we took up into space and everything was great. And what we see in these episodes, we see those natural hurdles that you, you would expect to see and the similar hurdles that we see on Earth through our own explorations and our own dealings with other nation states. So it's very relatable, um, very realistic as the kind of issues that the Federation would face in its early years. Yeah. Well, you say the Vulcans didn't just land and then we're swept away and everything's fine. And and sometimes I, I worry that because we need we need to understand what the challenges are mm. in order to reach a future where things are better the way they are in the twenty fourth century Star Trek, especially on TNG. And it and I worry sometimes that the implication of the ending of First Contact is that we had some strife in a time period very close to where we are now, and then the Vulcans came and then everything was okay. And mm-hmm. then we see this future where poverty has been been eradicated and hunger has been eradicated and most illnesses have been cured and there's no money and mm-hmm. everything is just, like you say, a utopia. And it's not that easy to get there. It's not that easy to achieve. And so I, I'm glad that they wrote these episodes that we're talking about today mm-hmm. And that they put this storyline into Enterprise about the backlash towards aliens that mm. occurred on Earth, just as a reminder of, yeah, there are steps. Now, I, I know there, there's World War Three, but of course that came before the Vulcans landed mm. in First Contact. And it, it's a rockier road, I think, to get to something like that than Star Trek sometimes will make one think. Well, it's one of the, I guess, the doubts I had about Enterprise was, you know, a hundred years really didn't seem like such a long time for them to get from that where they were at at the end of World War Three, and to where right. they were in, in Enterprise, and not just in terms of you know the relationships between humans, but also technologically. And it seemed like there were so many advancements in such a short period of time after this devastation. Yeah. Not that that's addressed, but certainly. 
the interhuman interactions and the difficulties there um, were were delved into in Demons and Terror Prime. Um, even um, something as simple as you know the Vulcans have rocked up and we've we've now got warp capabilities and um, why would we assume that that everyone felt the same about alien species coming to Earth? Um, you know, it's there's all sorts of different opinions on on any number of issues. So certainly, um, people like some people are going to be hopeful, others fearful um, at that event. Well, alien species coming to Earth is the the space analogy in Star Trek of mm. how we feel today with the world mixing as it is. And of course you have countries like the United States, which, which going way back are uh, societies in which people from all over the world come and it's like a melting pot. Mm. And then you have societies where it's less common to have foreigners. You know, I live in one here in Japan where for a long time, it, it really it was Japan for Japan. You didn't see many foreigners mm. here. Now you see a lot more foreigners here, but the society as a whole is still quite xenophobic. Mm. And and so it's it's very easy for me to relate to what we see happening in these episodes, especially in Demons, when they're down there in the bar and the people are after flocks. And, mm. and then as we progress and we hear Paxton and he's quoting Colonel Green and, and that feeling. And, and I really see this stuff happening... Uh, you know, all around the world these days, sometimes it feels like we are taking a step backwards mm. where uh, tolerance of other cultures, tolerance of other beliefs, even today in 2013, is sometimes a step backwards from where it was, you know, mm. maybe a decade ago. I mean, I sometimes wonder if that's that that fear response, though, is, is you know, pe people adapt at different speeds and... Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think to uh, you know, Australia's um, model of multiculturalism and um, there's been resistance to that by various groups in Australia you know, along the Terra Prime lines and some elements of, of immigration have been slow and steady and others have come in, in strong waves and it's the strong waves uh, where people feel out of control and tend to react right. to that. Yeah. Um, so I think the pace is a big part of it. Um, and you think about Enterprise, not only did they have the Vulcans come in, but then all these other races started rocking up and, um, you know, Paxton himself um, started developing these ideas after an accident, a flight accident with a Denobulin. Um well, I think it was his father that was, was killed in that, if, if I remember rightly. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he blamed Denobulans and therefore all aliens. For that yeah. accident, so it, it's a way of dealing with an, that uh, fear and prejudice is a response is an emo it's an emotional response to to feeling out of control. Yeah, right, right. And Josiah in here, when he's talking to Trip, he starts blaming the Vulcans for mm. everyone who died in World War Three. That's right. Be be and I think that was it's completely unfair. Mm. Be you know the the justification in his mind is that the Vulcans were observing us. Mm. They knew the war was happening. Mm. They didn't do anything to stop it. But, you know, it really wasn't the place of the Vulcans to step in and stop World mm. War Three. It, it, it was happening on another world. It's just like in the 24th century, if the Federation yeah. is standing by and looking at a world that doesn't have 
space travel, you know, by the definitions of the prime directive mm. and all, they're not necessarily going to step in. And if they did step in, it would technically be a violation of their own bylaws. But it's it's not fair to blame the Vulcans for what happened. You know, humans are responsible for World War III. Humans are responsible for all the people who died. It has nothing to do with the Vulcans. But even though it it doesn't make any real logical sense to to mm. blame someone for that, it's what we see all the time in society. You know, you you will blame another group mm. for your own ills. And as long as that blame for past events fuels the fire Mm. of hatred and brings any particular group of people together, then it it makes sense to those people. And and then it just grows and it grows. Well, that that particular scene with Josiah, when he's he's talking about blaming the Vulcans for not stepping in in World War III, it's a very interesting scene to me. It just brings back a lot of memories, particularly next generation and circumstances where Picard was having to implement the prime directive. Yeah. You know, and and uh, there, there was another episode of Voyager um, where they potentially can get this technology to send them home and they, the other race won't give them this technology. And, and, and it's it just gives us a perspective on that from the other side. And, and we've seen that anger from other species through our other Star Trek series. Mm-hmm. Why can't you help us? You've got this technology. Right. You could cure our illness as in Dear Doctor or... Um, you know, you, you could give us a technology that's going to advance us quicker or give us what we need. The other thing, though, in that, that scene with Josiah is that along with this sense of you could have helped us comes then the suspicion of why didn't you help us? What ulterior motive did you have? Right. The Vulcans perhaps wanted us to be weaker because it's easier to dominate and control a culture yeah. that is weak. Yeah. So that's when the you know the paranoia comes in. Yeah, and that's a classic thing in science fiction. You see it in other shows too, where the the aliens who want to invade Earth are going to pit people together. Uh, you know, you even saw it recently, uh, past few years in V, where of course they're trying to to uh, manipulate the population in order to to make them more susceptible. Mm. Uh, to be conquered but you also see there's this theory there of course i'm sure you've heard of the ancient astronaut theory and the idea there were aliens involved and of course helping the egyptians build the pyramids and all this Mm. stuff but there is this one theory about there are aliens who have always been manipulating earth and they are in control of the key governments and they're in control of the financial system and they're responsible for the wars. And it's all designed to keep nations pitted against one another mm, at all divide times. Divide and conquer. Yeah. And, and so you see this popping up in many, many places. But yeah, that's that's what Josiah says here, that he does. Well, the, the other theory that, it, that we see in TOS is that um, Greek gods gave us a lot of our culture. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> Also, giant green hands to reach out. That's right, yeah. In space. And, you know, Paxton even says that as well, that aliens like nothing better than seeing us fight one another. So Yes, yes. Um, you know, talking about Josiah, I found it interesting here that the, the choice of the name, because Josiah, the, the biblical Josiah, who was the king of Judah from 641 to 609 B.C., he carried out a lot of reforms, but one of the reforms he carried out was to really encourage the idea of monotheism. And he wanted everyone to worship Yahweh. Mm. 
and he outlawed other forms of worship. And I see in the statements that Josiah makes, especially to Tripp here, when one thing Tripp, you know, he questions him about aliens, and Josiah just says, well, they are not human. Mm. They feel that Josiah really sees humans as pure, and that's a statement that was made by Colonel Green as well, and he doesn't want humans to look toward anyone else. And then Paxton echoes that when he's talking to Archer in the confrontation right before the array fires mm. at Earth. And Paxton wants humans to go out and conquer the worlds that they need by themselves. It's by yep. human hands. Uh, as if the, then that achievement is worth more because we've done it ourselves, that we don't yeah. ask for help. It's, it's, right. Well, that, the, that word purity comes up a few times in, in these two episodes, um, and it's raised again by Chapol, uh when she finds out about uh, Paxton's illness and the fact that he's been getting Rigelian gene therapy to mm-hmm. to uh, treat that illness, um, and she calls him a hypocrite. Uh, you know, the, the very thing that he criticizes, you know, alien species interacting, working together, is the thing that is saving his life. And I see this well, echoed call... in, in modern-day culture as well. Oh, yeah. I would call him a typical politician mm. because the politicians who are passing laws, frequently the laws that they are passing are to make illegal the very activities that they themselves are doing all the time. Mm-hmm. That's true. It, it's, it's, it's one of these things that, that you know, we, we examine in Australian society as well is we have, um, there, as I said, there are elements in, in Australian politics that criticise uh, multicultural policies, um, but there's been so much uh, wealth of culture and, and diversity that has been contributed to our culture through those other uh, nations being a part of who we are. And I imagine, I mean, I know America's model of uh, multiculturalism is actually a little bit different to Australia's, but there's certainly um, a richness that is is introduced mm-hmm. to a society through other cultures, um, or different cultures interacting. Um in Australia, our, our cultures tend to still remain fairly distinct. So, mm-hmm. uh, and and that is a part of the criticism, is this expectation that we should all become one melting pot. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, but nevertheless, there is still a richness, and, and every everyday Australians enjoy, even on a basic level, the different cuisines that that are on offer through yeah. that those, those different ethnicities have introduced. And so there's, there's an element of hypocrisy of, of wanting that richness, um, but at the same time not wanting the people that bring it. Yeah, exactly. I think that richness is part of the point that Samuels makes at the end of the episode when he tells everyone that, you know, we can't let... We've seen humanity at its worst in mm. recent days, but we, we have to move forward. And with the xenophobia, I think any pivotal moment when something like the founding of this coalition is going to take place, we're always faced with people who are going to look backwards and people who are going to look forwards. Mm. So there are those who want to cling to the past and there are those who want to move us towards the future. And I think that the culture will, if not die, the culture will at least stagnate if we always look to the past and we want to just do things the way they've always been done. And so by forming this coalition and bringing all these other alien races in, having them on Earth, everyone working together, it allows 
Earth's culture, as well as the culture of these other worlds, to become richer so that they can grow and there's an evolution for all the worlds involved towards the future so that everyone's not simply stagnating. And then it's like if you if if the crew landed on a planet where the, the society hadn't hadn't changed for, you know, three thousand years because mm-hmm. they have no no influx of new ideas. Uh, that's something that you have to avoid and Terra Prime is fighting against. Mm. But ultimately, uh, that's what happens for the the coalition. Well, this issue of, um, you know, conservatism versus progression of society came up in the conversation with Paxton and T'Pol. And Mm -hmm. uh, his main concern was he basically says, how many generations before our genome is so diluted that the word human is nothing more than a footnote in some medical text? His concern yeah. seems to be much more genetics than than general culture. It's that purity of, of what it is to be human on a biological level. Um, but it can certainly be applied to to you know to to what he might term con- cultural contamination on a more broader level. Yeah. Um, to Paul's response to him is interesting. Um, she said, neither of our species is what it was a million years ago, nor what it'll become in the future. Life is change. And that, that to me summarises one of the biggest issues that, that we're looking at in these two episodes, is are we trying to preserve things as they are and as they have been, or are we, are we looking to, to bring about change or, or to embrace change? And I, I, I'm not, I mean, I'm more of the... Um, Actually, it's not it's not that simple an issue. I to give an example, I used to work in heritage conservation um, in the state government, and this was a major issue um, even in that field. You've got a heritage building. Is the idea of preserving its heritage to preserve it as it was when it was first built, or do we preserve it with acknowledgement of all the changes and tacky additions or great additions that have been made to it and changed to it over the years? What is its history? Is its history what it was at the beginning or is its history the path that it's taken over the years? And this is a very similar issue. You know, what what is humanity? Is, is humanity a stagnant thing to be preserved or is it something that's changing? And obviously it's about your perspective. Um, I have my perspective um, but there are others that are, are as vehement in their perspectives. But I also would say that my perspective changes depending on what we're talking about. So my preference with heritage buildings is, is different than with other things. Right, right. Well, I, I think on an individual level, it's your perspective, mm. what how you want to view it. As a society goes, though, it's, it's not really up to us as individuals. I mean, mm. time marches on and things change and... Mm. If you try to to preserve things as they were, uh, it, it's one thing to preserve a building. You know, mm-hmm. again, I, you know, I, I graduated from the University of Alabama, which was a flashpoint in the Civil War, and most of our mm-hmm. campus was burned down during the Civil War because our mm-hmm. university was converted into a military training academy during the war. And so we have a lot of buildings that predated the Civil War. Most of them were burned down. The ones that weren't, of course, we preserve them because they are, they're part of the heritage, right? Mm-hmm. But, but the campus as a whole cannot be maintained as it was at that point in time. You know, it mm-hmm. has to move forward. And I think Japan here is a great example where, you know, if you walk through Tokyo, 
you're going to see a very, very modern building right next to a, mm-hmm. a temple that's been there for a thousand years. It's, it's just, you, you, there, there is a mix there. But as far as life goes, mm-hmm. you, you have to let it progress. And I think people with the view that Paxton has and what the Terra Prime movement has, uh, these are the people who will ultimately destroy a society. Mm. Well, I think views. in terms of life in general, it's it's you can't stop it progressing. <laughs> you know, you, you well, it's just nature. Yeah, well, and this, um, people progress on an individual level. Therefore, society, culture is going to progress. Science will progress, and technology. Um, one of the things that made the uh, TOS episode This Side of Paradise so controversial <laughs> is that they had just accepted that, no, we don't need, really need to do anything anymore. <laughs> it was a stagnation of that society. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, that that's always a danger. You have to be mm. pushing yourself forward. It, it, um, I think we have a natural drive to do that, most of us, you know, on some To level. move forward. Yeah, yeah. I think we do, but I think we can become very complacent as well, mm. um, especially over the long term. You know, one of my favorite short stories is a, a story by John W. Campbell called Twilight. And in the story, there's a scientist. He's actually from, I think he's from 3059, if I remember correctly. But he's working with time and he's actually traveled like 7 million years in the future. And he sees mankind and they have stagnated to the point where they don't know how anything works anymore. Mm. They don't, they have like huge brains, but they don't think because they've just become so stagnant. And mm. I, I think that's a, I mean, that's an extreme example, but I think that's a risk too, where, where society and, and all of us can become so complacent and so accustomed to how things are. Everything works fine. So I'm happy with it like this. Actually, Matthew and I were talking about this a little bit on the orb today, uh, not about um, that story, but about the topic of genetic enhancements mm. you know, in, in Star Trek. So, Well, on the other side of things, as I was watching these, I got thinking about the messages in Jurassic Park about science progressing for the sake of progressing and perhaps getting out of control according to society's expectations. And the reason I was thinking about this was partly because of the episode Home and that scene where Archer stops and he questions, you know, are we doing the right thing here? We didn't really stop and think about what we were doing or what we were going to face going out there. Should we be exposing ourselves mm-hmm. to anyone and everyone? You know, there's that, that scene early on in season one where he um, he says, we're from Earth and here's our coordinates. I know. You know that that I... naivety. and. Yeah. um you know, even Paxton talks about this in one of his diatribes um, about how Starfleet's so used to hearing yes, you know, roam the stars, tell potentially hostile species the whereabouts of Earth and trust the entire future of our world to non-human creatures who don't even yeah. feel like we do. Um, and that, that's it's probably the only moment I thought there's maybe a small point there that I, I can take from him that that they 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 went out in a very naive fashion. They didn't think through these things or the consequent, the, even the potential consequences. Um, didn't even really question their own values in what they were doing. You know, it just it was just we keep moving forward. The Vulcans are here now. We're going to go out into space, and and that that can be an issue with science sometimes. It's it's just about 
progression and exploration and um, and there's not enough time devoted to thinking through those issues. Yeah. Well, that, you know, this has been a debate about whether we should broadcast our presence to aliens. I mean, that goes back even mm. when, when Frank Drake in 1974, when he broadcast the message from Arecibo, it, even then people are like, is this a good idea? Should we really be telling people that we're, that we're here? So, mm. and that's still going on, you know, even mm. our, in Archer's time and, and they question it again here. Well, so these are the big issues of the episode. Um, apart from the big issue here, with this being the end of the series, we can look at our characters and we can see where they've come from Broken Bow here to Demons and Terra Prime because um, Terra Prime is the last episode that actually takes place in the 22nd mm. century because these are the voyages, which we'll talk about at the end here today, is actually, it's set in 2370 with Riker on the on the Enterprise and all. So this is really the end of the 22nd century episodes uh, per se. And it took us all the way to the very, very end of this to ever get to see the surface of Mars in Star Trek. Mm. Because the one time it's seen in Voyager, it's a holographic recreation. And so here they're actually on the surface of Mars. And uh, all the Star Trek episodes, the, the planet right next door to us, we finally get to set foot right on the surface. Yeah, that's right. Um, it, this was actually mentioned on the season four DVD special features um, that, that that they'd, they'd realised that they hadn't actually ever really looked at Mars or the Moon, you know, which yeah. are, are obvious things given the it was proximity. Too close. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. It was in the blind spot. <laughs> that's right. Because what 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 is the cl- the closest planet? I guess we ever really see is Jupiter. In Star Trek, mm-hmm. we have a few things that happen around Jupiter, but but yeah, Mars was never, other than we know that there's the Utopia Planitia. I did Mars like the touch of the Carl Sagan Memorial. Yeah, that was very nice. I was glad to see them do that. Well, what did you think about the characters? Uh, which characters do you feel, who stands out to you in these two episodes as demonstrating notable growth, anyway, from the beginning of the series? Um- I felt watching these episodes that there were quite a few moments where the writers made deliberate nods to the characters to highlight their growth. And mm-hmm. the one that that first stood out to me was with Hoshi. Yeah. It, it, and it was yeah. in Terra Prime and she was about to take over command of the Enterprise um, while Archer was going off to Mars and he gives her the order to destroy the array if it starts firing up. And... He says, you know, I remember a time when you used to jump at every you know, little bump or whatever of, of Enterprise. Uh, and, and her response was, um, I still do. I just hide it better now. Yeah. And it was just one. Yeah. And it, and it took me right back to um, fight or flight and, and, yeah. uh, and the pilot and thinking about that. And watching her take command, I, I loved that. And she was so strong um, you know, against Samuels. Yeah, that, I thought that, that was well done because mm. I, I, I noted that. And I said, oh, she's so much braver mm. now than she was. And she's assertive as well. She's very assertive with Samuels. You know, he says, I'll have you relieved of duty. And she's like, look, I can only be relieved of duty by someone higher rank than me in my command mm. chain. And I was thinking, Hoshi, you're an ensign. Be careful. Almost everyone's higher rank than you. But <laughs> <laughs> but no, I like the fact that she's assertive with him and and she's very confident. But I thought it was well done because it would have been easy to just show her like, 
oh, suddenly Hoshi, she's very confident and strong mm. and assertive, and she's ready to take command. But but Linda didn't play it that way. She played no. it as strong, assertive, and brave, but also nervous. Mm. You could, and she played it well to show that inside, you know, this is something she's still not yet comfortable with, although she's getting there. But she can put the face on when she needs to, and take charge and get the job done, which is something that you know she would have never done this at the beginning of the series. I also thought it showed a lot of bravery for her to constantly hold off until the last moment, you know, because she was still wanting a good outcome. Um, but and it, it reminded me, in, in some small way, of Picard and, and the kind of way Picard would have conducted himself in knowing he what he had to do and being prepared to do it, but giving yeah. it every possible chance for the mission to succeed. That's where I felt a bit of her nervousness, though. I think that... Mm, yeah. I think if Hoshi were truly a strong commanding officer, which obviously mm. she's not there yet, if she were, I don't think she would have hesitated. She would have said, okay, time is up, mm. fire instead of holding off to the point because she she's lucky. I, I felt that she was lucky that they yeah. got into the control room and and then when they have trouble stopping mm. the array from firing, I felt a bit like, you know, oh she made the she made a bad decision as a mm. commander, really, because her orders were to fire and and she held off. But after that she did make contact with Archer. So then she stood down, which is the correct thing to do. But but I can see in other situations where someone else, you know, Cisco or someone, mm. probably would have fired because that, well, I was there was no time she, left. You know, she even though she'd made contact with Archer, it was still, you know, firing up. It was still on countdown. And, yeah. you know, and yes, yes, she'd made contact with Archer, but she didn't know he was going to be able to stop it. You know, that that was right. yeah, that was probably the one point I thought that was a bit odd. But you know, she just I think he... she was so glad that Archer was now in charge again. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, she was very relieved, and and they they weren't able to stop it. I mean, thankfully, mm. Trump was able to get in there and, and misdirect it so that it mm. it, it shot. Thankfully, it didn't go through time either, or it might have roasted George and Gracie. <laughs> after the bird of prey came back from 1986 but, yeah that that's a relief yeah. <laughs> but 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 luckily things turned out okay but i but nevertheless it was a lot of growth for hoshi and and we did see mm. how she came a long way from the beginning of the series i also i think topol stands out to me as well because and topol's Evolution was very gradual through the course mm. of the series to get her to where she is now. But seeing her hold Elizabeth, seeing her be accepting of the fact that this baby is half human, seeing mm. the anguish on her face at the very end of the episode over the death of Elizabeth, uh, you know, mm. seeing her grab Tripp's hand at the end. This is someone who despised humans at the beginning. Mm. And couldn't even stand to be around them because they smelled so bad. And she's someone who really, I think, grew so much. And it was a great contrast to Paxton in this episode uh, of of someone who was really, I think, opposed to Paul was mm. opposed to human Balkan cooperation. 
in Broken Bow and was reluctant about it in the first season of the, of the show and now has really come to accept that. She makes the, st- the, the comment to Paxton, actually, when she's holding Elizabeth, and she says, human and Vulcan genes produced this child, which indicates our two species have more similarities than differences. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, well, you know, and another character that stood out to me, and I, I think whilst I, I didn't notice so much development over the course of the, the series, this these two episodes presented a scenario in which we could see a development for Reed and his relationship yeah. with Section 31 and making peace with that and, and actually having some power of his own in that situation. Um, and and then he and uh, I can't recall the guy's name, but the other operative departing as equals. And I, I like that. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that was a thing. That I, I find Section 31 very interesting, although I feel like it's overused these days. Uh, not necessarily mm. at the time that this episode was produced, but um, in the time since in the literature and mm. in Into Darkness as well. You know, it's like Section 31, Section 31 all the time. Uh, but, you know, we find out um, in the current ongoing comics, post Into Darkness, the Kidmore Conflict comics, we find someone very unexpected who happens mm. to be involved with section 31. But for Reed, it was an interesting development. I mean, it's one of those things where maybe you, you, you wish that that had been there earlier on mm. through the series. Um, there are a lot of missed opportunities in enterprise for mm. character development because too much focus gets placed on to Paul. Uh, a lot of the times, uh, true up Archer, of course, because he's the captain, so we don't see even development for a lot of the characters, mm. but it, it was an interesting moment here for Reed, yeah. Were there any other character moments that stood out to you? Uh, those are the main ones, really. I mean, Archer, of course, we saw Archer change over the course of the Zindi arc, and mm. similar to T'Pol, I think that Archer has become a more visionary leader. You know, mm. he was kind of this... Fr- I mean, he was... In rank, he was captain, but when they left Space Dock in Broken Bow, he was still fresh. Mm. He's going out there. And so now I see him as a stronger and a more visionary leader. And I think most importantly is that he's come to see the value of an alliance between Vulcans and humans and also involving other alien species as well. You know, he did a lot over the course of the series to bring together the Vulcans and the Andorians and the Tellarites. And I think... Whereas at the beginning of the series, he was someone who was very resentful of the Vulcans. I think he's someone who, if Paxton had talked to him before the events of Broken Bow, he might have sympathized with Paxton's view a little bit. Mm. But here, he thinks Paxton is crazy. And he really sees, I feel that it's necessary for the benefit of mankind that we form this alliance and we take this next step forward into the larger galaxy. And it is a contrast to the kind of person that he was at the very beginning of the series. I'd just like to point out, I think, a really lovely character moment in Terra Prime was with Phlox when Elizabeth's dying. 
and he talks about having come to Enterprise in the first instance as a diversion from his own family complications. But now, the you know, the crew have become a, another family for him and he felt the loss of um, Elizabeth as, as if she were his own. And I thought that was a lovely moment for Phlox and um, it, it felt very genuine um, and, you know, there was a lot of emotion in the way he expressed that. And it was just a subtle, you know, element of to show us how far he's he's come and, and yeah. the, the change in his perspective. It, you know, it wasn't just a medical assignment anymore. These people meant something to him. And reinforcing again uh, that, 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 that closeness between species. Yeah. Um, so I really liked that moment. Yeah, I think John Billingsley did a really good job throughout the series, I think, of mm. conveying that emotion. Mm. Uh, Flux, to me is a character well John Billingsley to me and the way he portrays Flux is a character that for me feels very natural he's an alien character but he feels very mm. natural the same way that O'Brien feels very natural to me mm. on, uh, especially on Deep Space Nine but pretty much anything that Colmini is in he comes across that way I think John Billingsley is very similar for me in that sense as well, you know who I thought was a little bit unexpected in this series of episodes and that was Mayweather yeah he felt like a completely different character he actually he had a bit of a spine to him you know he was yeah. getting the women he was standing up to her as well he was thinking am i yeah. going to settle down he was saving the day with his piloting skills he actually had yeah. some guts about him he did and it was disappointing to me actually because and what i mean by that is that for two episodes we got to see what Travis could have been mm-hmm. if they had written him throughout the series. And it's just, it's disappointing to me that we had to wait till the very end. And then we we do, he does feel like a different character in these two episodes a lot of the time. And, mm. and I wish that they had given him those characteristics early on and, mm. and really made him part of the crew throughout the entire series. One more character moment I'd just like to mention. It was specific, very specific to these two episodes and that was with Ambassador Samuels. And I think it was a really important element. It was a, a small element, but an important one. How at the start, he's much more concerned about his profile, getting attention, informing yeah. this coalition, um, taking all the glory for himself, Enterprise aren't even acknowledged. Um, and then by the end, he he's willing to share that and he realises that all of this is so much bigger than just him and his ego. There's a lot more at stake. And, and by handing the reins over to Archer a little bit in, in that closing scene, you know, it actually you know, it works and it pulls everyone together again. Yeah, um, it does. Um, his change is a little bit sudden, I think, because even when they're on the, on the NXO one and he's really pressuring Hoshi, I'm not sure mm-hmm. that he has really come to see things that way yet. But, but at the end... You just kind of have to accept well, a little bit of time, you know, a few days have passed and he's had time mm. to think about what happened. And then he's kind of come to his senses, at least in my eyes, because I think that's the right position, you know, the moving forward with this coalition is the right position. So, Well, I wondered yeah. if he kind of figured, well, you know, I can keep it all to myself and have nothing because the whole thing's falling apart or share it and have something. Yeah. Well, let's talk about one last thing in the discussion today, and this is whether or not Demons and Terra Prime are the finale of Enterprise, or mm. whether these are the voyages. 
is the finale of Enterprise because there's a lot of fan debate about this. And These Are the Voyages is the last episode of Enterprise in terms of numbered episodes. But I have my own thoughts on it. What's your position on this, Kate? I'd probably like to start by just because I was watching the special features today on, on the season four DVDs. And um, I'd just like to to kind of share what Manny Koto said about this he actually said that he felt the season ended ended in two ways and what he said about this particular two-parter he said um it's designed to be a closure a final kind of arc to this season where we come back to earth to find out that the last obstacle to forming a federation happens to be mankind itself and i thought that summed up this two-parter beautifully he then goes really? on to say okay. that Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> he talks about facing our own demons. That, yeah. that, that's what this is about. Ultimately, it's not about oh, yeah. Yeah, um, the battles with other worlds. It's the battles within. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then he goes on to say that um, his understanding from Rick and Branham was that these other voyages was a Valentine to Star Trek. I've heard them say that before. Yeah, and he thought it was a say. tremendously fitting end to this run of Star Trek. He's not saying as an end to Enterprise, but rather as an end to Star Trek as a whole, yeah. that, that modern version of right. Star Trek. Um, well, I, I kind of feel that he summed it up fairly well in terms of how I see it. I mean, I I think that Demons and Terra Prime work very well as a finale to Enterprise. Um, I'm not – the only hesitation I've got is does it – I'm not sure if it needed – a little something else. I mean, I really like that that kind of closing scene where Archer's giving the big speech in these other voyages or he's going out ready to give his speech. Um, maybe just something for a little more kick if it was going to be the last one. But definitely these are the voyages um, was a tribute to Star Trek as a whole. It's what annoyed the cast so much is that it wasn't about Enterprise. Right. It, it, it was, they made it about other things. I, I sometimes wonder if, if they'd take it, made it more as um, almost a, a telly movie or a special aside from Enterprise. Yeah. That, that it would have worked better. Yeah. I think uh, the reason I said really when you were talking about what Manikota <laughs> said is that I, so first of all, I completely agree with him about what Demons is about, what Terra Prime's about, facing our own demons. And it's, you know, it's about us. Absolutely. And it's why I think it's, I think this two-parter, is one of the great stories in Enterprise. If, if I were making a list of episodes of Enterprise for someone to watch, you know, this would be in a hint, like my top 10 for sure. I would, you have to go watch this. If you think you don't like Enterprise, mm. go watch these two episodes because they're self-contained enough mm. that you don't need to know the rest of Enterprise in order to enjoy these two episodes. And I think if you watch them and you get the message that's there, then you will be inclined to go back and and watch the rest of the series. But what I don't agree with him on is that this was a good closure for the season or a good closure for the series because mm. I just feel like they get there a little bit with the very, very final scenes of Terra Prime where they do have the crew and they have Samuels back there in mm. the conference room and they they give the little speech about how we need to move forward. But ultimately... Enterprise was supposed to be leading up to 
the future that we already know. And the founding of the Federation is a really important part of that. Mm. And I feel what happens with Demons and Terra Prime is that you get a two-parter that's a great story by itself. And if it fell anywhere else within the series, it'd be fantastic in terms of its closure. But as the very last moments of Enterprise, because I don't consider These Are the Voyages to be the last episode of Enterprise, and I consider Demons and Terra Prime to be the end of the series. Mm. And so I just, I feel like we're just kind of left hanging. Okay, Mm. like, okay, what happens next? We need to know more. And so I, I don't think it was a good closure for the series. That that's kind of what I was getting at. That there's not quite enough for me to make it yeah. a finale. That there are some of those elements. Of, I mean, we know that they're now willing to talk again, but yeah. they still haven't gotten to that they? coalition. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, so um, yeah, and so there are some elements in these other voyages that that I like in that respect. That there's a little more closure to it, a little more pomp and ceremony, and we've done it. Right. So on the screen, we don't know. And we've had to wait until just this past year where Christopher L. Bennett is putting together the uh, A Choice of Futures. But it was the Rise of the Federation series and A Choice of Futures is the, the first book that came out. We actually get to see the beginnings of that coming together of these worlds and how Starfleet came together and they're kind of meshing their technologies and such. And that's the kind of stuff I would have loved to have seen in mm. a... I don't know, fifth, sixth, seventh season of Enterprise. I, I've always wanted the Romulan War to fit in there somewhere, so we have to work out the timelines. The Romulan War books came before these Rise of the Federation books. So let's just say fifth, sixth season, maybe we saw the Romulan Wars play out. Mm. Seventh season, we mm. actually get to see the Federation coming together. Yeah. That would have given us the, the closure that we needed, and unfortunately we've had to turn to the literature to get that Um mm. Uh, but but the stories themselves, these two episodes, are, are I think they're really, really excellent. Uh, mm. In fact, I actually put them up there as a couple of the best episodes in Star Trek, not just of Enterprise, but yep. in Star Trek in general. Now, these are the voyages. I think that I've come to hate that episode less than mm. I did at one point in time. I, I get it. I understand what they were trying to do. I understand what was what they were thinking and why they did what they did and what their intentions were, and I think they had very good intentions. I think, like you just said, that maybe if it were a TV movie, mm. it would have been better. I think fans would have received it a lot better. I think fans would have loved seeing Riker and Troy again and seeing yeah. those... And the cast. Um, yeah, and the cast and the amazing shots of the Enterprise-D flying through the asteroid field, which is supposed to be happening in the episode Pegasus from TNG, Mm. if they had not had the Enterprise credits on it, if it had just been Mm. some other, like, these are the Voyages TV special, an episode that looks back at Star Trek, I think fans would see that episode in a completely different way. Mm. Um, The problem is, I've mentioned this to you before, and you didn't get to see it this way being in Australia, but when, when these episodes aired in the United States, first run, they showed Terra Prime, and then right afterwards, they showed These Are the Voyages. Mm. So it was like a two-hour finale of Enterprise with these back-to-back episodes. And so everyone took it as, here's the very last episode of Enterprise. And that just sent everybody into uh, a flurry because 
wait a minute, what do you mean this is the last episode of Enterprise? It's the next generation episode. Mm, mm. I, I can certainly, uh, yeah, I've never had much against it, but I also, it's it's not one I go back to a lot to yeah. rewatch. Um, yeah. I felt really distracted by the extra weight that Riker's carrying, to be honest. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, kind of hard to buy it as being a part of that same what I also just find, me. What I also find distracting about Riker and Troy both is that enough time had passed there that I feel like they're both a little bit out of character. Mm. A lot of the time I feel like, especially when they're sitting in the observation lounge, I feel like I'm watching Marina Surtees and Jonathan Frakes joking around with each other instead of watching Counselor Troy and Commander Riker talking mm. to each other. Mm. Yeah, uh, I can say that too. Um, yeah. I I just wish, I guess, reflecting back on it all, that, that there had been an, an Enterprise finale that was unique to Enterprise after Terra Prime um not that that I, you know these are the voyages doesn't have value but um there, there's just some neither one of them for me really does the trick yeah exactly yeah it, you just feel like you're left I, thankfully enterprise didn't end in some sort of cliffhanger or some like truly mm. unresolved situation mm. but it I think, feels um, a little bit unfulfilling as yeah movie. Either way. Well, I mean, we were talking a bit about, you know, Rick and Brannon's intentions and I think it was a nice gesture, I think, not not only to themselves but to people that had worked on the series over the 18 years. Yeah. Um, and and that, that was it for them. This wasn't just about Enterprise. They were saying goodbye to Star Trek um, and so they felt like that was something they really wanted to do and to mm-hmm. to honour the, 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 the history of Star Trek. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's honourable in itself. But um, I, I just want to point out that one thing in in Terra Prime in that closing scene that that I I really loved, and and that was in Archer's speech when he talks about um, you know the most profound discoveries not being what's out there in space, but what's within us and the relationships mm-hmm. that we have and the things that bind us. And the reason I like that so much, and I think that would have worked brilliantly. In, in a finale as well, in some form, um, is because it brings us back to the Roddenberry vision and yeah. about science fiction being a vehicle through which we can explore the human condition. And so I loved that. It was one of my favourite moments. Yeah, Archer summed up exactly what Star Trek is all about. Mm. Yep. Definitely. All right, well, any final thoughts on Demons and Terra Prime before we wrap up? Uh, just just to say that that I'm on the same page as you, Chris. That um, you know, the more I watch these episodes, the more I like them, and and they certainly have become uh, two of my favourite episodes in the series. There's some great stuff in season four. Great mini arcs. Manny Cotto does a brilliant job of that, and I, I think he 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 got these just right. You know, brilliant messages in it. It reinforces so much of what we already know through other Star Trek series and, and and also brings us new elements to this story and, and makes it more complete and more believable. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And I think the, the casting was good as well. And I'm glad they got Peter Weller to play Paxton because he had mm. the, the weight that that role required as well. So, um, yeah, I agree with everything you said. Uh, again, I'm a little 
it's a little bit bittersweet because I, I think they set up a very, very interesting situation here. And um, it got resolved in two episodes, although in reality it wouldn't have been resolved because you know there are still going to be plenty of those Terra Prime people who mm. are still opposed to moving forward. And it would have been wonderful to see how that played out. All right. Well, it has been an interesting discussion, Kate, but it's not the only thing we've been talking about this week on the network. So here are some other things you may have missed elsewhere on Trek FM. Previously on Trek.FM, Standard Orbit. The Unmade Starfleet Academy movie. You know, even even on paper. Okay, do we want to do the the script, which was written by the guy who wrote Star Trek V, or do we want to do the script, which was written by the guy who wrote Star Trek II? Earl Grey. The ships of TNG. Oh, no, it's one ship that splits into three parts, just like the D is one ship that splits into two parts. It's not a Voltron. It's, it's one <laughs> ship. <laughs> and Al formed the saucer. The orb. Dr. Bashir, I presume commentary. I know, it's just a hostile the look on Cisco's face the whole time. He's just looking at Zimmerman like, all right, you're a, you're a piece of work, aren't you? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> to the journey! Seska. And obviously, Seska couldn't let go. No. And she proved that by having his child against his will. Yeah. Now, here is the Murray Show twist of the future. <laughs> He does not impregnate her. She impregnates herself with his DNA. Or so she thought. But he is not the father. The ready room. But it's also really gloomy, and it's sad. I never want to go back there. I don't want to, like, re-experience that. Like, just the visual uh, candy of being able to go outside and, and talk to the Vorta and... Wow, I maybe didn't phrase that properly. I, I meant I meant the change in color and lighting. Oh. I did not mean. But she's a very. I thought you were Florida. talking about Kiana. <laughs> she is fetching. No, she's a, she's a fetching lass. Warp five. Zindi evolution. Well, I think maybe Okapa and Insectoid are two races that could have a life together. You know, you've got the nine-year lifespan of the Okapa. You've got the twelve-year lifespan of an Insectoid. If they meet at the right time, it could be could be a beautiful love story. Commentary, Trek stars. Iris Stephen Bears, Star Trek. And it's the first time I heard him say something that he said several times over the years is, you know, one day, one day when we're not the middle child, we're not the stepchild, people are going to go, holy crap, look at DS9. Literary Treks. Slings and arrows, a sea of troubles. You you see in this book, too, that Picard is facing this melancholy because they've been worried about the Borg, and now the Dominion is on the horizon, and there's these two things, and obviously this is before first contact, so that hasn't happened yet. And Picard seems to be kind of weighed down in this story in some ways. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out all of these shows and get your daily Trek Talk fix. We have new Trek Talk for you every day of the week. And some days we even have two shows for you. And you'll find them in a variety of places, including iTunes, TuneIn, Stitcher, Windows Phone, Xbox, Zune. Or you can download or stream from the website and find out what we're saying about your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe. Now, Kate, since last time, uh, well, last week, Colin was on with me and we had some feedback and we have some more feedback that just came in today, in fact. And this is from LF Speller in Places Unknown. And LF is talking about the last episode. So it'll be interesting to get your thoughts real quick on this. Mm -hmm. uh, Colin and I talked about Zindi evolution. And one of the things we talked about were the Zindi avians, which we don't see because we know that they have gone extinct. 
And one thing LF says is that he believes he heard somewhere in an interview that the avians were just too difficult for the costume department and unrealistic for the CGI team to create. And I also feel like I've heard that somewhere as well. Does that ring a bell for you? I haven't heard anything about that, no. Um, mm. But, you know, it wouldn't surprise me. Yeah. I feel like I've heard that somewhere, although I think for the story, it's, I, I like the idea that there was a sixth species mm. that they don't know that much about anymore because, it, you know, they went extinct. And so our, our crew, anyway, can't find out so much about it. It's It kind of makes the, the Zindi a little bit more interesting for me than, than if they were if all six of them were still there and you'd have the zindi avians squawking in the corner while you've got the aquatics <laughs> over there moaning in the tank you know? as long as uh porthos didn't try to retrieve them and uh you know his game sport <laughs> that's right or or they the aquatics try to climb in the broth with porthos <laughs> either, so. another interesting point that that lf makes here is that perhaps, because Colin and I talked about how the different species could have evolved on isolated land masses on a very large planet, that the avians could have been the first to circumnavigate Zendus and come into contact with other species. It doesn't appear that they were very aggressive, so perhaps they were even more passive than the arboreals and their mm. elusiveness might explain their disappearance. Uh, that's very interesting uh, because... If, as we just kind of hypothesized last week, Zendus happened to be, say, two times the size of Earth, and so the these different species developed independently from one another, it would make sense that the avians, as the species that had the, the ability to fly, mm. could have been the first ones to circumnavigate the planet. So that's a really great point. Who needs a starship when you've got wings? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's what the avians always say. <laughs> so um, I like that point as well. And also LF mentions Dear Doctor when we were talking about two different humanoid societies. Mm. We were talking about humans and Neanderthals here on Earth. And yeah, Dear Doctor is a great example of within Enterprise of how two species, uh, intelligent species, could evolve in the, in the same world. Mm. So, um, so, so LF, thanks so much for your feedback. We love hearing from all the listeners. And if you'd like to share your thoughts with us, you can do that by going to trek.afilm slash contact. There's a form there. Choose to send to a show and choose Warp 5, and that will come to us by email. You can also send voicemail through the website or go to our forums at trek.afilm slash forums to talk to us and other listeners. And on Facebook, you'll find us at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And on Twitter, you'll find us under the username trek.fm. All right, Kate, uh, you do have a little announcement to make here as we wrap up both the show and the year. I do, Chris. Um, this is actually uh, to be my last episode of Warp 5. Um, as uh, as they say in all the best TV shows, it's been a long road getting from there to here. It's been a long time, but my time is finally here. So um, I've had a great time on the show and um, I'd like to, to thank you immensely for, for giving me the opportunity to to talk about Enterprise on Warp 5 with you. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a blast, so thank you very much. Oh, yes, it's been, a, it's been a lot of fun, even if you do go out quoting Faith of the Heart. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, well, I, I don't especially hate that song. But <laughs> <laughs> Some people listening may, though. <laughs> 
particularly yeah, it's, jazz it's, renditions. <laughs> the jazz rendition is good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's been a lot of fun. And yeah. And I want to thank you for all your contributions to the discussions here on Warp 5, as well as, of course, on the Ready Room when we've talked about Enterprise and you've been on Decade and Trek News and Views as well and all these uh, uh, places. So so thanks for your contributions to the network. Well, I mean, um, from my perspective, it you know, we, we don't do this in isolation. There have been a lot of great conversations on Twitter, um, yep. a, a lot of um, really valuable feedback, but also ideas, things that, have, that, that I've brought to the show based on what people have tweeted. Um, and I've, I've really enjoyed that interaction. We have a lot of loyal listeners, and I'm very grateful for that. Um, but I've also had a lot of support uh, within the network. Um, one, one of um, my biggest supports has been Colin, who did Trek News and Views, both you know as a fellow podcaster and someone that's very knowledgeable about Trek, but also as a friend. So um, he deserves a word of thanks. Um, and, and the one other um, group of people that I'd, I'd like to acknowledge is uh, the guests that we've had on the show so far over the last six or so months, and that's um, Dave Rossi, Brandon Braga, Doug Drexler and Robert Duncan McNeil, who were very gracious in their time, and it was a wonderful opportunity to get to talk to them as well. Oh, absolutely. Well, people can continue to find you on Twitter, correct? They can. I'm at Kate is great okay. So if anyone would like to talk either about Demons and Terra Prime or about Enterprise or Trek in general, you can find me on Twitter most days of the week. Great. All right. So so thanks again for all your contributions. And uh, for everyone else, don't uh, Warp 5 is not going anywhere. I'm still going to be here. And the show will continue on with me. I'll have other guests on, other hosts. You know, we, we have a very large network. We have 16 shows on the network. We have a lot of hosts. So you'll see uh, a lot of familiar voices popping in from time to time, as you did Colin last week. And uh, we are going to be taking a break for the holidays here, uh, both, you know, the holidays offset depending on where you are in the world. So for for everyone over in the States, of course, you have a lot of stuff coming up here at the end of December. For me in Japan here, the first week of January is a big break period for us as well. So uh, we'll be taking a little bit of a break and then we'll be back on January 10th with a new episode of Warp 5. So um, you won't see any new shows for the next couple of weeks, but don't worry. The show isn't going anywhere. And in the meantime, of course, as Kate said, you can find her on Twitter. And you can also find me on Twitter at C Brian Jones. That's the letter C and Brian with a Y. And you can find me pretty much everywhere in social media under that same username. Also on my personal website at cbrianjones.com. And then elsewhere on the network, you'll find me on the Ready Room with hosts from all over the network and special guests. We talk about Star Trek news there. We talk about all five live action series. So we have an enterprise show there. Uh, once every five weeks. You'll also find me on The Orb and Literary Treks with Matthew Rushing. The Orb is exclusively Deep Space Nine, like this show is Enterprise. Literary Treks is Star Trek Books and Comics, and we interview authors. And uh, then I have my interview show, Matter Stream, where I interview scientists, writers, actors, creatives, all sorts of people about topics that are loosely related to Star Trek or inspired by Star Trek. So you can find all of those as well. Also, Kate, before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor for today's show. Your support of our sponsor is really important for helping us bring Warp 5 to you. And the sponsor this week is Audible.com. Audible is just a really fantastic way for you to read all those books that you've always wanted to read, but you never thought you'd have time for. Because if you're like me, you've got a long list, but uh, you have limited time. How much reading do you get to do, Kate? 
I actually don't get to do very much at all other than Star Trek websites. <laughs> right? I know. It's really hard in the modern world to find time to sit down and, and just read. And so Audible lets you listen to those books while you're working, while you're exercising. I notice you've been going on workouts the past few days. Kate, oh, so yeah, can... I have. And in this heat, it's, it's crazy. I can tell you that. <laughs> I bet. <laughs> so with Audible, you know, you can pop a Star Trek book or any other bestseller or classic that you want right there and enjoy it as you're working out. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice along with the trial just to see how great Audible is. So give it a try today. Catch up on all those books you want to read. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up and that will help us keep Warp 5 coming to you. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash trekfm and we really thank Audible for their support of Warp 5 and the network. We also wanted to invite you to check out Andrew Allen's album, Smooth Federation. If you like the jazz cover of Where My Heart Will Take Me, here on Warp 5, you probably like it better than the one that I've just given a little earlier. <laughs> um, <laughs> you'll find that plus nine other jazz renditions of music from across Star Trek. So pick up the album in iTunes or on Amazon. And Chris, word has it that if you're suffering from extreme nausea, in the case of shuttle pod turbulence in the wake of a meteor, that rather than reaching for the vomit bag, Andrew Allen's album will set you right. <laughs> we did that remastered scene where instead of Flock saying, here's a bag, he hands him a copy of Smooth Federation. <laughs> That'd be beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. All right. So yeah, go check out that album by Andrew and pick that up. Also, there's one more way you can directly help us keep Warp 5 coming to you. If you go to our website at trek.fm slash donate, there are some original alien illustrations there. These are original illustrations by Tobu Ushi, who does most of the artwork that you see on our website. We have them as badges. We have them as art prints. And you can mix and match, choose which ones you want in which format. We have different contribution levels for you to choose from as well. And your support helps us pay for the cost of production, hosting, and bandwidth that's needed to bring the show to you each week. Again, you'll find those over at trek.fm slash donate. And we really thank you for helping us keep the network going. So, Kate, this is where you usually invite everyone to come and get into the decon chamber with us uh, for another episode of Warp 5. But I guess you won't be in the decon chamber next time, will you? Oh, no, I won't be. Um, yeah, I, I think I might have caught something and have oh, no. had to go get go off to sick bay and, and, you know, get put in a kind of broth. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. The decon chamber is not enough. You have to go soak in the broth. Yeah, yes. <laughs> so, no, I won't be in the decon chamber next week. I'm keeping Porthos company for a bit. All right, all right. So, um, so everyone, tune in next time to find out if the broth cured Kate, and then I'll be here with uh, another guest on January 10th for another episode of Warp 5.